Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. Why don't you go with me to Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 17. When Jesus returned from the wilderness and being tempted by the enemy, he came preaching a message. And verse 17 tells us what he said. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you might have heard of the story, little parable of Two young fish swimming along in the ocean, having a pleasant conversation. And an older fish swims by and casually says, how's the water this morning, boys? And the two young fish go further, go past, and one of them looks at the other and says, what in the world is water? And when I first heard that, I thought, you know, that's exactly what culture is like. Culture is to a church and to a family, to an organisation, to a society, what water is to a fish. It's all around us. It's in everything we say. It's in everything we think. It's in everything we do. And yet we don't often notice it or know what it is precisely because it's everywhere. It's all around us. It's the air, the atmosphere that we breathe. And so as we come to this subject of kingdom culture, the culture of the kingdom of God as it relates to the local church. For us to understand our core values, we need to understand context. Context is really important in how you interpret scripture and how you understand something and place it in its right meaning in your life. And so we need to understand, first of all, what Jesus meant by the kingdom of heaven. And we also need to understand a little bit more about culture. The kingdom of God, I did a lot of teaching about this in 2022. You can go back to the podcast and I'm uh, currently writing a book on the kingdom of God coming out in 2050. Um, <laughs> it's taking so long. Um, but the kingdom of God is the realm in which God rules and reigns. Wherever King Jesus and his rule is, his dominion, there the kingdom of God is. And theologically, biblically, and practically, there are three expressions to the kingdom of God that's important for us to understand if we're going to understand the culture of it. Firstly, is kingdom eternal. This is God's sovereign rule outside time and space, weaving its way through our lives and throughout human history. And when it comes to kingdom eternal, you and I basically don't get a vote in it. It's gonna happen regardless, okay? It's God in his sovereignty doing what he's doing and even the enemy doesn't get a say. And we can trust because God's character is good and Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever that his kingdom is good and the sovereignty of his story throughout human history ultimately is taking us to the second expression of the kingdom of God and that is kingdom to come. 
And we read about kingdom to come in the various uh, prophetic declarations of Jesus in the Gospels, as well as the book of Revelation. And this is all about the consummation of the kingdom at the second coming of Jesus. How many of us know Jesus is coming back again? That's not to be uh, provoke fear in us. That is to be met with excitement. Come, Lord Jesus, because there is nothing like being in the presence of God for all eternity. And so kingdom to come is about when Jesus returns and totally annihilates the kingdom of darkness and sends it to the lake of fire for all eternity. There's kingdom eternal. It began with God. It continues for all eternity, which our finite brains find difficult to comprehend. But then there is kingdom to come and the consummation of the kingdom. But the third expression of the kingdom is kingdom now. This is relevant to every single one of us here today. This is the immediate breaking in of the kingdom power of heaven in the earthly realm. Jesus said, Matthew 6.10, pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You and I, if we're followers of Jesus, believers in Christ, disciples of Jesus, you and I are sons and daughters of our heavenly Father and citizens in the kingdom of God. And we are to expect, pray for, contend for, believe for the breaking in of the rule and realm of God in the earthly realm. And so this is part and parcel of what it means to be a believer. And so when Jesus began his public ministry, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he declared the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, he was declaring the good news that the king has arrived. He was saying the kingdom is here because the king is here. Satan is defeated, dominion is restored, and the lost are going to be reconciled back to the heavenly Father. Jesus said in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed to the ends of the earth and then the end shall come. Maybe one of the reasons why Jesus hasn't returned yet is because the church isn't preaching the same gospel Jesus was preaching. It's so important you understand that Jesus did not come sent by the Father to live, to die, to rise again, just so that you could get your gospel ticket and get saved, enter into the doorway of the kingdom and stop. No, the gospel is beyond just the, the cross and the empty tomb. The gospel is significant and as absolutely imperative and as important as that gospel message is, the gospel is also this full understanding of the rule and the realm of God, the kingdom of God that you and I are a part of. And Jesus tells us that the entry point into the kingdom of God is not just feeling sorrowful for our sin, that may be part and parcel of our own response to what Jesus has done, but entry point into the kingdom is through a change of our thinking. Repentance means a change of mind a change of thinking. Jesus goes on in other aspects of the Gospels. John 3, 3, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Speaking about the importance of every person to be born of the Spirit. Before you and I come to Jesus, we are dead in sin. Literally, our spirits are flatlined. And so our spirits, whilst we're created to be spiritual beings as much as physical beings, our spirit being dead cannot access or relate 
relate to God as a spirit person, as a, our heavenly Father, because our spirits are dead. But God comes in His grace and He loves us, gives us Jesus, and He illuminates the truth of the gospel to our hearts. And as we respond in repentance and confession of sin and in faith, our spirits are literally regenerated, reborn. You are born again. And the moment you are born of the Spirit, you are now a son and daughter, a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. You now can begin to discern spiritual things. The natural person cannot discern supernatural things, but only the spiritual person. And the spiritual person is someone who has been born of the Spirit. Not only that, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 3, unless you become like a little child, unless you graduate into the maturity of childlikeness, not childishness, not immaturity, but childlikeness, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. What is one of the primary characteristics of a child? Trust in somebody else. They trust their parent. They trust willfully. They, they believe what their parent tells them. And that often is really damaging in a toxic and unhealthy environment. But when it comes to the kingdom of God and our heavenly Father, we are to grow up and graduate into the maturity of childlike faith that learn to trust and depend upon God and upon our heavenly Father and not upon our own understanding. So if we are going to understand the kingdom and we're gonna embrace the culture of the kingdom, we've got to embrace Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to the pattern, to the mold or the spirit of this world, but be transformed, metamorphosis, be transformed by the renewal of the spirit of your mind. Uh, after you come into the kingdom of heaven, after you get saved, the greatest transformation is in between your two ears in your thinking, in your mind. You can be saved, regenerated in your spirit, but if you're not renewed in the spirit of your mind, you can still operate out of carnality, out of the spirit of your flesh, out of the dead man thinking, stinking thinking. So we need an upgrade from the neck up. Do you know what I'm talking about? We, we need a renewal of our minds to, to how many of us know sometimes we sabotage ourselves and our minds get in the way of this new new creation reality that God has given to us in the Spirit. And so renewing our minds is teaching us to learn how to think like God, how to approach earthly things from a heavenly perspective. You either live from earth to heaven with a beggar mentality or you live from heaven to earth with a son mentality. We're not orphans, we're sons and daughters of the Most High God. We have a heavenly Father who is only exceedingly and abundantly good. The Bible says Jesus stays the same yesterday, today and forever. He was good back then, He's good today and He'll be good tomorrow. And so when we come into the reality of that and have our minds renewed by that, it changes how we live our lives. And so once we understand the kingdom, we then need to understand the role of culture. What's culture? Culture is the collective ideas, customs and beliefs that shape the behaviour of a group of people. You see it in companies, you see it in education sector, you see it in families, you see it in sporting clubs, you see it in societies and governments, and you see it in local churches. Culture is the lens 
through which you approach the world around you. It's what we call a worldview. Whether you realise it or not, every single one of us, youngest to the oldest, we have a worldview. We have a lens through which we look at life. And that worldview and culture has been passed down from one generation to the next through rituals, stories, languages, objects, experiences, education or lack of. And so depending upon our family of origin, depending upon our upbringing and depending upon our life experiences impacts and determines the worldview, the lens through which you're even hearing and receiving this word right now. Based upon your history with God, your knowledge of the Word, or maybe your negative experiences in church life or your positive experiences of church life, you bring a worldview. You bring a lens to your interactions with people. So in Latin, uh, the word culture is cultura. It's an agricultural term. It means to till or plough the land for crops. It speaks of cultivation. And so what you cultivate either determines your fruitfulness or lack of in, in, in your life, in your spirit, as much as in the natural. So culture is to a church what soil is to a plant. If the soil is contaminated, how many of us know living things die? I've sent a lot of plants to be with Jesus because <laughs> I'm not a very good horticulturalist, okay? I wasn't blessed with that passion or that interest and my wife loves plants and flowers and things and tends to those things but if it was left to me they'd all go to be with Jesus uh, and 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 so in, in our house I'm speaking I do care about the environment just want to point that out um, <laughs> this has been recorded isn't it yeah good um, if the soil is toxic Living things die. The soil is healthy. What is alive, what organism is alive there, living things flourish. The same goes for the culture of the church. Culture grows whatever culture is. And so the environment we cultivate in our lives, in our ministry teams, in the church, is either going to help or hinder the spiritual growth of the church. It's in Christ that we're being built together into a holy temple so that we would become a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. I love that in Ephesians 2. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So we as a community of faith are based upon not just the apostles and prophets, but more importantly, the cornerstone of the chief shepherd, Jesus himself. Jesus is the owner of this church. I'm not the owner as the senior pastor, the, the, the board or even the elders. Jesus is the chief shepherd. This isn't our company, our business. It's His church. We are His family. So we don't get to pick and choose what values of the kingdom we want. We have to go to the king. We have to go to the chief cornerstone. And we have to ask, God, how, do you, how have you designed this thing, this beautiful thing called the local church to look like, to operate by, well, in order to answer that, we need to look at the kingdom of God because the church isn't the kingdom, it's the vehicle of the kingdom. 
Our mission is to advance the kingdom of God across the nations. We are the citizens, the vehicle. And so we need to understand what fuel do we need to actually get in the vehicle of the kingdom? What are the ingredients? What are the components of the vehicle that we need in order to take the kingdom where God has called us to go? It's interesting in the Netherlands, they grow 85% of the world's supply of tulips, flowers. Just you've come to church and learned something new today. But the interesting thing about that is that the climate of the Netherlands is not conducive to growing flowers. And yet what have they done? They've created greenhouses all over the countryside that has the right culture, the right ecosystem inside of it that they can grow flowers and export that all across the earth. We live in a society and a world that is not conducive to the advancement of the kingdom of God. But when the people of God cultivate the right culture, kingdom culture, and come into alignment with the truths of the kingdom, we create greenhouses and ecosystems that can flourish in hostile environments. Whether it's your workplace, whether it's the education sector, whether it's all sorts of bizarre stuff in policy or whatever it may be, the kingdom of God starts, you read the parables in Matthew, as a small seed in the ground. But yet it grows into the biggest tree that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Don't ever despise the day of small things. Everything in the kingdom starts as a small seed. But if it's cultivated, if it's developed, if it's tended to, it will grow and grow and grow and expand and take the kingdom across the nations into people's hearts. So we have eight kingdom culture values for the last four years We've had seven. We've been very reticent about adding to that because as you've discovered in life, add more, life gets more complex. But over the last several months, as we've seen this mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this spirit of revival, hundreds of miracles, cancer patients being healed, blind eyes opening, deaf ears opening, lives being transformed. We've also come to learn and discover something that is really being practiced amongst us that we need to articulate, we need to give definition to. And so I'm gonna speak to that in our eighth value. Let's go quickly through this list. Number one, prayer fuels power. This is a defining value in our church. This is where we ask the question, have you prayed about it? How many of us know sometimes we talk about it, we phone a friend about it, we complain about it, but the last resort is we pray about it. This is where we say, is prayer our first response or our last resort? This value shapes why we have pre-service prayer, why we pray so much in our services, in worship, why we open up the altars for prayer, why we have 24-7 prayer, why we have upper room prayer, why we have prayer power, why we encourage and equip every believer to have a secret place time with the Lord every single day. What does the Bible say in Matthew 6, 5? When you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and He will openly reward you. I wanna encourage you, the Father's waiting for you in the secret place. 
He's here now. His presence is here. He's ministering to you by His Spirit through His Son. But you need to understand something. There is a secret place that God is calling you into. He wants a personal, intimate relationship with you. And so out of the overflow of the secret place, we learn to pray without ceasing. We literally become prayer. Everywhere we go, public transport, with friends, cafe, restaurant, in a work meeting, where literally prayer is on our lips. It's on our hearts. You don't even need to articulate it out loud, but you become a living prayer everywhere you go. That's the only way you can actually fulfil the command to pray without ceasing. And of all the things that disciples taught, uh, uh, or asked Jesus to teach them, it was to pray. Can you teach us to pray? It wasn't how to heal the sick, take up an offering and preach a good message. How to have your best life now. How do we have our best life now? No, it was, Jesus, can you teach us to pray? Because when you come back from your time with your heavenly Father, I tell you what, it's fireworks. Signs and wonders, miracles. Something happens in the secret place, Jesus. We need to learn what that is. You know, in World War II, the Nazi U-boats would target the Allied supply ships because they understood if you cut off the supply line, you can win the battle at the front line. What does the enemy do in our lives? He targets the supply line of prayer and the word in your life to cut off your authority, your spiritual power to actually win the battle at the front line of your workplace and of your relationships and in your daily life. You've got to guard the secret place. If you guard the secret place, the public arena will take care of itself. Prayer fuels power. Let's practice the nuclear bomb of prayer and fasting and watch what God does in your life. Secondly, God's Word is our foundation. This is where we ask the question, what does God's Word say about that? This is not consulting our opinions. It's doing the hard work of wrestling with the words of Jesus, the commands of the New Testament, the teachings and stories and examples from the Old Covenant. It's where we wrestle with Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And we live in the Word. We build our lives upon the Word. We don't necessarily consult our opinions. To be honest with you, I'm not even interested in my own opinion. Because the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You can't even understand your own heart. The biggest you know, lie and deception of the enemy is just follow your heart. All the best with that. All the best. You do that, you're going to have a crash. What does the text say? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. We need the illuminating spotlight of the Word of God. The entrance of your Word brings light. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If you're struggling for direction, needing clarity, needing to understand the truth of God's Word, live your life in the Word. Base your life upon the Word of God. You may not be able to interpret everything but straight away and understand it all, but Lord, would You fill us with the spirit of wisdom and revelation? Would You bring great teachers and disciples into our lives that can help us understand and unpack the Word. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7, 24? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Foolish people build their life on the shifting sands of culture. Wise people build their life on the absolute truth 
of God's word. In Greek mythology, there is this figure, this legend of Prometheus. He was a chameleon who could change his identity to trick people according to his willful agenda. And one day Prometheus changed himself into so many different identities, he forgot and couldn't return back to who he originally was. Many churches, many believers are like Promethean. They move with the shifting sands of opinion and feelings and relative truth that they've lost their way and they're more lost than a goose in a hailstorm because they don't know what actually is the actual bedrock foundational truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has called us to. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Either he's absolutely crazy mad or he is who he says he is, the Son of God. And if he is who he says he is and we go against that, we of all people should be pitied. God's Word, He is the living Word. He is our foundation. Thirdly, making disciples is not optional. This is where we understand that the Great Commission is not an option, it's a command. And so the question we ask is, who are you discipling? And in order to answer that question, you need to understand the importance of investing your life into somebody else. We can't make a disciple if we aren't one already. We need people speaking into our life. We need a teachable, humble, student learner heart, not just of the Word, not just of our own prayer lives, but of being discipled. And then we need to understand the importance of going and making disciples of other people. Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations. Being a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus, a student and a learner. And so Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of people. Follow me as we learn to be discipled in, in following Jesus. He makes us and he uses leaders and teachers and disciples and apostles and prophets and life group leaders and ministry heads and other believers to help us to actually learn what it means to go and invest our lives into other people's lives. Are you with me today? Fourthly, miracles are normal. Now, the moment that you say that is a declaration of spiritual warfare. Miracles are normal. For people who've never seen a miracle, that is like, well, I find that hard to believe. It's because in our Western culture, with our Greco-Roman sort of Western education approach to life, we've come to look down upon, see as inferior, the supernatural spiritual realm. And it's all about what you can do as a human. Humanism or human philosophy is about what you can do in your own strength, your own rationality and your own logic. But you need to understand you're a part of another kingdom that's otherworldly. You're a citizen in the kingdom of God. There is a Holy Spirit and He is a person and He wants a relationship with you. He's filled and infused and endued with power. And Acts 1.8 says, but you shall receive dunamis power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The gospel isn't complete unless it's demonstrated in power. 
The kingdom is not in its full expression unless it's demonstrated in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we've got to understand also that as we go, Jesus said, proclaim the kingdom of heaven. What does that look like, Jesus? It looks like cleansing the lepers, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. This is where this value is where we ask the question, is the supernatural part of my lifestyle or is it an exception? Is it a norm or is it an exception? Let me tell you, in all honesty, with what God's doing in the life of our church right now, just hang around for five minutes, you'll bump into a miracle. Don't worry, it'll chase you down. Because these signs will accompany those who believe. And what's been cultivated and developed at Newman Church is a house of faith to believe for the supernatural power of the Gospel to manifest in people's lives. I praise God that we're hearing testimonies of sick people in workplaces and in local streets being healed by a simple prayer in the Name of Jesus. We're hearing stories and testimonies of prophecies and deliverances and all sorts of things, not just in the four walls of the church, but breaking out in our culture and society at large. In Bangkok, when we had a team go there, hit the campuses, went, hit the streets, people were encountering that miracles are normal and this is a normal part of life. So we, I I just, I've, I've lived, I don't understand the mindset that is the opposite to that. I've just grown up living and expecting, of course, Jesus heals the sick. Of course he does. We've seen it. I saw my own father have a stroke and and prayed for 30 minutes later. Impossible, sat upright, clear, lucid communication. Doctors were confounded. This could not be. Second stroke he had. They said it was gonna be months of recovery. I saw the power and authority of the Name of Jesus raise his body up. You can't argue me out of it. I've seen so many miracles. We've seen so many miracles here that you, we just know, yep, absolutely. He's done it once, He'll do it again. Miracles are still on the menu of the Kingdom of God and of the local church. And so if they are, you can expect them, you can pray for them, you can contend for them. This Gospel is to be proclaimed and demonstrated with acts and works of power not just in word. It's a word that is demonstrated. Miracles are normal. Powerless Christianity actually presents to the world an inferior view of who Jesus is. You, 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 you go to some countries where they practice witchcraft and go in with a powerless gospel, see how long you last. We, we go to these places. One of our great friends, Ben Fitzgerald, just over the last week has been in a hostile Islamic nation on the run. He better know that he's got the power of the Holy Spirit at work in him. See, we're so comfortable in Australia. It's like, you know, you can sort of get by even in church. I had someone say to me once, it'd just be easier to be a Baptist, you know, and not to believe that in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm no way putting down my Baptist brothers and sisters because many of them actually are contending for the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. But they were making the point that in some parts of the body of Christ, it's actually easier just to, you know, hold on, wait for the rapture bus for Jesus to come and not believe for anything. But that's not true Christianity. 
And we're so comfortable and complacent that we can sort of get by in our own strength for a period of time in our comfortable, prosperous lives. But then when the doctor's report comes in and the boss sits down and the spouse says, I don't love you anymore and issues come and attack your mind and all sorts of things rage against you, you better know there is a Holy Spirit of power. There is a Word of God. There is a Gospel. There is a miracle working kingdom that I'm a part of and I can believe for it and access. I'm preaching myself happy right now because I'm a part of a supernatural kingdom where anything can happen and it probably will. So prayer fuels power. God's Word's our foundation. Making disciples is not optional. Miracles are normal. Love gives generously. Love, thank you. Love gives generously. This is where we ask the question, am I growing in Christ's likeness? You know, the closer we get to Jesus, the more generous we should become. I don't understand. People have been Christians for years and they've become more stingy and more miserable. Do you, does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense. Why is it that some people can be in church 50 years and they're the most miserable, lemon-sucking people? It's like, didn't you read Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Proverbs says, the world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. Do you know people who don't even follow Jesus but are generous are much happier than Christians who are not generous? They're more Christ-like than some Christians. That shouldn't be. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we grow in a revelation of Christ-likeness. For God so loved the world that He gave. You're never more like God than when you give. And how many of us know generosity is a theme of your heart before, it, before it's an action of your hand? And so it's not just about finances, that's part of it, but it's about how we honour people with our encouragement, our generosity of looking people in the eye and affirming them for who they are and their value as a person. Love gives generously. You can't say you love someone and not be generous towards them. Because generosity or love without generosity lacks integrity. If you love your spouse, you want to show that. You love the house of God. You love God. You want to show that. And so we need to grow in that one of the primary expressions of a New Testament church, the kingdom of God, let alone a revival church, is love demonstrated through generosity. And I praise God for that core value that we have in the life of the church, let it grow and increase because one of the signs that people know in the world that we belong to Jesus is the way that we love each other. What if we came every time to gather together thinking, how can I bless someone today? How can I give something away? Come with a word of encouragement, a card with a prophecy on it. Look, who, who do I give this to? Some cash to give away. Bake a cake, give a car away. Seriously, the early church had no needs because they practiced the culture of generosity. There are so many needs in this room right now and no one, our culture in terms of Aussie ethos isn't to walk around and tell everyone your needs, right? Sort of ask for handouts. But what if as part of our supernatural lifestyle and as part of being in each other's lives, we, we, we carry burdens of the Lord for people and discern things and say, hey, can I pray for you? What can, can I take you out for lunch? 
Can I, you know, pay for the next person that you don't know uh, their bill at the restaurant? No, seriously, this is where it begins. How we host and steward our cafe owners on Bridge Road after church, our restaurants, is really important to us. Look after them, bless them, tip them, honour them. They're right on our doorstep. If we can't love our own neighbours as ourselves, how how can we demonstrate the generosity of Jesus? God is speaking today. Love gives generously. Not only that, freedom, number six, is a responsibility. This is not often talked about in church life because it's not understood well. This is where we ask the question, how am I stewarding my freedom? Now, if you go back through church history, and even as you look at the early church writings, you see that often believers have misused freedom in Christ for either a license to justify sin or as a a stick or a rod of legalism to judge people with. And so based upon your freedom and the sort of clarity or cleanliness of your conscience and the things that the Holy Spirit's convicting you of, you can use that as a rod to accuse or judge others for what they would accept. We see this in the life of the early church writings when it comes to eating certain foods. In that culture for us, it's like, it's all up to eat. Thank you, Jesus. But in that day, there was food offered to idols And some people were not, you know, their conscience didn't accuse them when they ate that food offered to others would say, I can't eat that because of the spiritual nature of the offering. Are you with me? Do you get what I'm saying? Okay. So we need to understand you've been called to freedom in Christ. It's for freedom Christ set you free, but you're not to use that call to freedom as a license to indulge your sin nature, your flesh. As a believer, you are dead to sin and you are alive in Christ. It doesn't mean you won't struggle with the flesh, but you are to consider yourself completely and totally dead to sin. If you don't consider yourself dead to sin, there'll always be an ajar door creaking open waiting for you to slip through. But if you're dead to sin and alive in Christ, I can take captive every thought. I can exercise the fruit of the Spirit's self-control because being free in Christ and stewarding it means I'm learning to govern myself in partnership with the Holy Spirit, not needing religious legalistic control in order to dictate my holiness. We are not building a church or a culture environment where we get the stick out of legalism to try and get people to perform religious behaviour. No, to be honest, I don't have the energy or the time. And secondly, that is not how God designed the kingdom. We are equipping, empowering and discipling people into spiritual maturity where you and I together are learning how to partner with the Holy Spirit and not be externally manipulated and controlled, but internally governed by the governor himself, the Holy Spirit, so that we can grow into full measure and stature of Jesus Christ. Number seven, church is a covenant family. This is where we ask the question, 
Am I growing in a sense of belonging? Every single one of us in this room has a need to belong. It's what causes people, when you don't have the real thing of kingdom community, you settle for a partial thing, membership in a football club or meeting your friends every week, all weekend in a nightclub. It's not just that they're really dark and evil and wanna, you know, just destroy their lives. They wanna feel like they belong. And a lot of people get involved in a lot of things simply out of a desire to be recognised, seen and feel like they belong. As we grow as a church, it is so important we cultivate a culture of belonging. And there is a difference, how many know there's a difference between a hotel and a home? Go to a hotel, you stay there overnight, you can mess your room up, leave your bed undone, put, throw the towels on the ground and know someone's gonna come and clean that up. It's a different level of ownership and stewardship to your home. You do that in your home too long, there's gonna be conversations, right? It's just true. So do, do we treat God's house as a home, a family? Or do we treat it as a hotel of transactional relationship? And let's be honest, when we come together on Sundays, there isn't a lot of time for us to have mountains of hours of fellowship. We come together, we worship, it's glorious, we are fed the word, we're equipped, we celebrate. Maybe there's a little bit of time to connect afterwards over lunch and we wanna cultivate more of that fellowship and community. But we also need to understand the importance of life groups and fellowship and being involved in each other's lives, building relationship. Because we're a covenant family. I've discovered in my own family, we may disagree on certain preferences, but we're still loyal to each other. If you don't understand covenant family, if there is, isn't something according to your preference, your palate or your taste, you're like, I'm out. I don't, I don't like the worship there, I'm out. Well, God never asks you to evaluate the worship. He asks you to experience his presence. Is it okay if I just preach truth today? Seriously, we, we, we get all these intellectual offenses and we wonder why we don't break through into more of what God has for us. Um, now, of course, we wanna, we wanna enjoy the whole worship experience, but it, it, belonging to a family doesn't mean everything is according to your preference. My wife and I are very different. We disagree over certain things, but absolutely in covenant and loyal. And so it's so important in a covenant family is that we've got each other's backs. Because if we cannot demonstrate true covenant community, how can we win the world for Jesus? If we can't win it in here, how can we win it out there? When, when you're in a hostile work situation, you're being persecuted, and this is happening right now for many of you, you're being persecuted for your faith, you better know there's someone in your corner praying for you. You better be able to have someone you can text and reach out to and say, can you please pray for me today? I'm having a tough day. It's not about, you know, the world says you can do it on your own. You cannot. You're not, it's not good for man or woman to be alone. That's not about marriage. It's about covenant community. God is building himself a family on earth. 
A family reproduces sons and daughters. A franchise reproduces employees. Don't hear Numa Sunshine Coast, Numa Perth West, Numa Adelaide North, Numa Moon and think to yourself, oh, it's the franchise. It's a franchise model. We're going to go like, oh, no, don't hear that. That is not what we're about. One of the primary distinctives of what attracted my wife and I to this house 10 years ago was family. It's in the soil. It's a part of it. And if you don't embrace it, it's not because there's not a heart that's willing to embrace you. It's because you're holding, you're stiff-arming people. And that could be because of your woundedness and your brokenness and previous experiences of church life or of people that have hurt you. But come to the Father, there's healing for that. And as you come to the love and the heart of the Father, your heart gets healed. You open your heart up to people. You become a part of a family. There's nothing better than the family of God coming together. When church works, it's beautiful. It's glorious. In fact, one of the reasons why I'm in ministry today is because I was in secular workplaces running away from the call of God. And my, when I was on shift work, my heart would grieve that I was missing the family of faith. But wherever God calls you, if you're part of a family and you belong and you're building a relationship with people, you're never alone. Not only is the Lord with you, but you've got family with you. And number eight, and lastly, honour affirms value. Am I celebrating people for who they are, not stumbling over who they are not? We live in a culture that points the finger you're not this. Mum and dad weren't that. The pastor isn't this. And yet the great, one of the great commandments or one of the great 10 commandments is honour your mother and father. Warts and all. Celebrate them for who they are. Don't stumble over who they're not. The leaders of this church are not Jesus. Only Jesus is perfect. Celebrate who they are, don't stumble over who they're not. Doesn't mean there's feed, isn't feedback, accountability, a need to be able to come together, practice Matthew 18 if there's an issue. But honour has been mistaught in the church, particularly in the Pentecostal charismatic circles where it's very much one-dimensional north towards leadership. The biblical idea of honour is 360 degrees. We all deserve honour because we're all image bearers of God. So whether you've got a title or not, whether you're on the platform or not, honour affirms value. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, speaking about the principle of honour, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me, the Father. So how you honour people determines what you receive from them. Why is it, we'll be done in a moment, why is it, just honour the word, <laughs> honour affirms value, why is it that two people listening to the same message can walk out, one produces a hundredfold fruit, the other produces no fruit? It's not because there's an issue with the word, the word works. The word has all the necessary spiritual sperma in it to conceive of the work of the Spirit in you. 
The word works. Heaven and earth shall pass away, Jesus said, but my word shall remain forever. The issue is the soil of our hearts in which we receive the word. Is it honourable or is it, bless me if you can, let's see what this whippersnipper dishes up today. Serious. God never asked us to critique it or evaluate it. He asked us to come in with childlike faith, honour and receive and say, God, I'm going to get something out of this. And as you come with childlike faith and a heart of honour, you will receive a great reward. How you and I honour determines what we receive. And this is what I've learned about what honour does. When you give people honour and you speak honour over people, it calls people higher to live out their royal identity in Christ. Particularly when people sin and are suffering from shame and condemnation. You can either pile the shame and condemnation on or you actually can call them higher according to their royal identity in who they are in Christ and show honour and say, hey, you're a son and daughter of God. You're, you're actually better than that. How you, treat, how you treat yourself, how you treat that person, that's not how the Father treats you. Come on, let's come out of that. Come with me. I'm going to show you how we do this. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died and rose again, conquering sin, Satan and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.